Well, since Miss Danielle got to share some of her nicknames, kiddos and parents, did you know that I have some nicknames as well growing up? I do. My grandpas uh, each had, what's that? No, it was not Stoner. My, both of my grandpas had a nickname for me. My, uh, my papa called me Hotshot. So I was Hotshot uh, growing up uh, to him. My other grandpa, my pa, uh, he called me Train Laney, which was kind of a, his own version of Trent Delaney. Somehow that morphed into Train Laney. So as I was a kid growing up, that's, what, uh, that's how he referred to me. Uh, my aunt uh, called me, and I don't know where this came from, uh, you'll like this one, Kirklefoot. No idea. I have no, no backstory. All I know is my Aunt Baby, that was what I called her. Her name was Teresa. She was my Auntie Baby growing up. She called me Kirklefoot. So there you go. There's that one. Uh, in high school, I had a couple of names. For whatever reason, um, somebody thought that I resembled um, um, Boo Boo Bear of Yogi and Boo Boo. So, yes, indeed, you're looking at Boo. And, uh, and then during uh, the, the original uh, run of Footloose, um, because, you know, I was that guy in high school, and uh, they, they called me Ren, so, which is actually kind of like take off the T and the T in Trent, R-E-N, Ren. So when, uh, when Footloose came out, that was my nickname for a little bit. And then I had one more. It's my breakdancing name. You've always, you've, I've been here for how long? And I know that's the one question that you've always wanted to know. Trent, we know that you used to be a breakdancer, but Trent, all good breakdancers have a breakdancing name. What was yours? That has been the question that has been lingering in your mind, I'm sure, for years. Well, my breakdancing name was Easy T. So there you go. That's right. That's me. Easy T, right? There you go. That's it. All right. So nicknames are given and they're attached to somebody uh, because it tells us something about their person or about that person. It can be something about their looks, something uh, about their personality, uh, something about an experience that somebody had with that person. So there's all kinds of reasons why nicknames are given. And we're in a series on the names of God. And they're not, they're not nicknames for God. They're actually names that either God has given to himself, that he's revealed uh, to people through different stories in the scripture, or their names that people have ascribed to, have given to God based on how they've observed him at work in their life and in the world around them. And so that's what, we're, that's what we've been looking at uh, over the last few weeks is different names of God. And one of the premises of the series, and again, this is just a little bit of review, is that the reality is all of us have skewed views of God. Our, our ideas of who God is have been warped by our own experiences, by, by people who've influenced perhaps uh, to think wrong thoughts about God. And so one of the goals of this series is really to unskew our view of who God is, to be able to begin to, to see him as he is, not as we perceive him to be, not as we want him to be. And the way for us to unskew our view is to look into the scriptures at ways that he has either revealed himself to others and said, this is who I am, 
or look at ways that others have experienced him and have described him in certain ways that he has basically said, yep, I like that. That is an accurate depiction of who I am. So today we're going to look at two more names. One of them is a self-revealed name of God. In other words, this is who God says he is, what he has to say about himself. The other is a, is a name given by somebody else, okay? So the two words, uh, the two names we're going to look at today, and we're going to try to do this quickly for the sake of time, is Yahweh Jireh and Yahweh Rapha. And we're going to learn what each of those mean uh, in just a minute. Now, uh, what I want you to do is I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 22, uh, we're going to learn about Yahweh Jireh from the story in Genesis 22 that Jacob preached on just a couple of months ago. And I'm not going to re-preach the story of Abraham and Isaac, okay? but that's the text that we're going to be in. Um, uh, Jacob, again, was a, did a fantastic job just, uh, just a couple of months ago, so we're not going to walk slowly through the passage, but I do want to go back to the story and focus on the name that Abraham gave to God, that he gave to Yahweh. And, and again, it's a name that has huge implications when we find ourselves in places of uncertainty, when, when we feel like perhaps our faith is being tested and has the potential uh, to be shaken, okay? That's when we need to experience and know God by this name. Uh, again, uh, Genesis 22, a little bit backstory. After years of waiting, Abraham finally has his son. And we know, uh, again, I'm going to make an assumption just for the sake of time, that we know Abraham's story, right? He's the father of the nation of Israel. God uh, told him to just leave your, leave your country and just go to a land that I'm going to tell you about. I'm going to start a nation, a great nation through you. Abraham goes, and uh, God says that your, your descendants are going to be like the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. Uh, he's married to Sarah, and they've been married for a long time, and no child, right? No baby, Right? No kids, no, no nothing. They're in a long season of waiting. Finally, at the age of 99, uh, Sarah gives birth. They bring Isaac into the world. So this child of promise finally has arrived. And imagine the joy and the excitement that, that now they have the, the, the possibility. They've got that line started to become who God said he would be, would be the father of a great nation. So again, the story, Abraham now has his son, the son of promise. Abraham knew that it was through him that he would become the father of many, right? Um, we don't know how old Isaac is in this story. A lot of scholars would say he's probably a teenager. But in Genesis 22.1, look at what it says. It says, Abraham, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Now again, let me just stop right there and just quickly mention this, that a couple of things. First, it says that God was the one who tested Abraham. That's not something that we talk a lot about. In fact, what's often and often unbiblically taught is that um, if God loves me and I love him, then everything in life is going to be great. If I love God and he loves me, then nothing bad will ever happen in my life. I'll be blessed I'll be healthy, I'll be wealthy, I'll be happy, and all will be well. If we're not careful, we can think that God's love and a comfortable life are synonymous. 
That, that since God loves me, that he's going to give me a comfortable life. But how many of you have lived life long enough to know that that doesn't seem to be true? Those two things are not accurate. Okay, good. So the second thing that we need to think about is this, is that up to this point, Abraham, Abraham has already shown radical obedience to God. Going back to when we're first taught or introduced to Abraham, and he basically drops what he's doing and just heads out to a country, to a land, to a place that God doesn't even tell him where he's going. He just goes. So if you read his, his kind of life story for 10 chapters, uh, he has left everything and everyone that was comfortable, and he's followed faithfully, and now he's waited for you know, 25 years to see the, the promise fulfilled. Again, if we're just being honest, every time that God calls on Abraham uh, and asks him to do something, it, it's something like this. He asks him to, to leave something good, to give up something that he cherishes, and, and to attempt something impossible. That, that's been what's happened in Abraham's life up to this point. Right? Leave something good, give up something he cherishes, or attempt something impossible. This, at this point in life, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just weird for thinking like this, but if I'm him, if I'm in his shoes, and, and God comes and begins to speak to me, begins to knock on my door, so to speak, I'd be like, hey, hey, honey, don't answer it. As a matter of fact, let's just turn off the TV and turn off the lights, because I saw who it is through the window, and every time that guy shows up, he's asking me to do stuff. Like, at some point, Abraham must have been tempted to think, oh, not again. Not, not again. Not more faith. Not more trust. Not more waiting. Not more fill in the blank. Because every time God shows up, he's asking something great of Abraham. Verse 2 says, uh, he said, and again, he kind of slows things down. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Again, we got to understand what's at stake here. As if sacrificing your own child isn't bad enough. I mean, again, attached to him is so much of your, your hopes and your dreams, and, 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 and he has so much of your affections, right? On top of that, your child's survival, his life, is responsible for, would, would eventually be responsible for the eternal souls of all of the human race. You say, well, how, how is that? Well, because we know that through Isaac, who's going to eventually come? Anybody? Jesus. Like, there's a lot at stake in Isaac's life. And God says, hey, I've got something to do. I've got something for you to do with him. I want you to offer him up. Again, the, the obvious question, if you're, if, you, if you're reading this story, you're thinking about it for the first time, would be like, how in the world would God ask something like this? How in the world would he ask something like this? And the simple answer is this, is that God knew. God knew that he was never going to let Abraham actually kill Isaac. God knew that. But for now, here's what I want you to do. I want you just to think about this story, but I want you to connect it to your own life. I want you to think about how Isaac, in your life, my life, on our lives, can and does kind of represent that one thing, just that one thing that you love the most, that, that thing that, that you treasure the most, 
the thing that you trust the most, the thing that makes life most worth living for you. Do you have that in your, in your head right now? I want you to think about that. And so what, what God is asking Abraham and what, what I think ultimately he, he asks of all of us is this. Are you prepared to love me completely and unconditionally? Are you willing to give me access to what you love the most? Is there anything or anyone that you love that if I asked you for, you would say, "Mm -mm, can't have it. You can have a lot, God, but you can't have that. I'll give you most, God, but you can't have that. Again, what is that thing for you? What's that thing that if God asked you right this moment to offer it up to him, to simply say, God, here it is. I'm giving this to you. Would your your impulse be to squeeze a little tighter, to hold it a little closer, to resist it a little bit more? Is it a relationship? Is it it your kids? Is it your ideal plans for the future? University students, that's applicable for you, right? That, That you have these ideal plans that you have lined up for your future. What if God said, will you give that to me? Will you sacrifice that for me? where you live, where you work, what it is that takes up your time. God says, take that kid that you love so much. Take that career that you love so much. Take that status that you love so much. Take those followers on social media that you love so much. Take that good thing, right, that you have simply let become a God thing in your life and offer it up to me. What do you do? What do you do in that moment? Right? That, that's what this story is. And we know the story, right? That they go on this journey. They go on this journey where he takes his son to the mountain. And the son begins to question. He said, look, you brought the, 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 the wood and, and uh, where's, the, where's, the, where's the ram? Where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? And God, and he tells Isaac, you know, God will provide for himself uh, a sacrifice, a lamb uh, for, for the sacrifice. And, and again, I'm not going to tell the story. I'm not going to re-preach the whole message. I want to get to the point so we can get on to the name and then move on to the next name. But you know the story, right? He puts I, Isaac on the altar and, and he begins to lift uh, the knife to, to, to literally sacrifice Isaac. And that's when, when God steps in and says, no, 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 stop. Now I know. Now I know that you love me more than anything else. But there's a question there, right? Didn't didn't God already know? Well, of course he did, because God knows everything. What that really taught was, it taught Abraham that he would know that he is willing to offer everything. It was a test for, for Abraham. And it's there that after that, Abraham comes to this realization. Genesis 22, down in verse 14, this is where we see the name it says, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Yahweh Jireh. As it is said today, to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Abraham came to know God in a way that nobody had ever 
thought about or had given a name to. He, he saw and experienced God as his ultimate provider. Yahweh Jireh. Th- this story is definitely uh, about faith, Abraham's faith. And Abraham is commended for his faith in this story, his willingness in this story. But we need to remind ourselves that Abraham is not the hero of this story. This isn't a story about faith as much as it is about provision, about the fact that God would provide, that God in his love and faithfulness proves that his promises are true. Back in the story, when he holds the knife, there in the thicket was a lamb caught by, the, by its horns, and that's what they used uh, as the sacrifice. God, Yahweh, Jireh, provided for the sacrifice. The, the story is about provision, God providing. You know, in the original, and I didn't know this, and again, this just kind of popped in some of my research and study this week. The original translation of Genesis, the Hebrew, uh, is a little bit more direct. Instead of thinking it, the Lord will provide in the Hebrew language, they would have understood it to, to, to mean this or to, to, to say this. The Lord will see to it. The Lord will see to it. And that's what Abraham learned in that moment. That when everything was uncertain, when Abraham was tempted to question the goodness and the faithfulness and the love and the promise of God, when God moved and he provided the sacrifice, Abraham was able to say, you know what? God saw to it. God saw the circumstances. He saw the situation. I didn't see it all, but he saw it all. He saw to it. And and here's what I want you to understand is the fact that he sees to it means that he sees you. He is seeing to it means he sees you. He sees what's going on in your life. He knows what you need. And wherever he sees, he acts. So if he sees you, and he is, and he does, then you can be confident that he is acting behind the scenes as Yahweh Jireh, ready to provide for you at every moment that you have a need in your life. You see, experiencing Yahweh Jireh means a couple of things. First of all, it means this. It means that I can focus on God's promises even when I don't know the details. What do I mean by that? Well, see, how many of you are planners? How many of you know planners? Do you you understand if you're a planner, if you know somebody that is a planner, this story, Abraham's story, is yours or their worst nightmare? It really is. Put your your planner hat on and go back and read and reread the story of Abraham. It'll make you stress out. I want you to go, Abraham. Where to? I'll tell you. How will I know when you get there? You'll know when I say you're there. Okay, I want you to take Isaac to a mountain. right? And there's actually something very interesting in that piece I've never thought about before. If you go back up to verse 2, it says, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, again, which I shall tell you. Think about that, 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 that contrast there, all right? Did you catch it? 
I think it's important because I think it shows how God works with us today. What do I mean by that? Well, when we begin to move out in faith, we say, God, I'm going to do what you want me to do. I'm going to go where you want me to go. We want to know exactly where, when, how, and why. But God says to Abraham, go to the land of Moriah, this region, right? Could have been translated region. And then once you get there, I'll tell you which mountain. He first sends Abraham to a, to a region, to an area, before he tells him the final destination. And, and I, I don't know if that speaks to you, but it speaks to me. Like, I want the final destination. I, I don't want God just to tell me the area to go, the direction to move toward. I want him to give me all of the details. But that's not often and those of you who have been walking with Christ for any number of years know that that's the truth. God often doesn't tell us which mountain before he sees us moving toward the region, before he sees us moving toward the land that, that he's told us to go to. Once we move in the direction that he tells us, then he begins to reveal the, des- the destination. Does that make sense? That was fresh for me reading this story. Uh, and I'm, I'm passing that along to you. How, how often does God give you direction but doesn't let you know the destination? How often do you desire to know the place God has taken you but he just wants you to trust his promise? Listen, we, we, don't, we don't get the details before the obedience. And, and what Abraham understood because he, he learned that Yahweh Jireh is Yahweh Jireh, right? God provides. So it would have freed him up from having to know the details. And if we understand that God provides, God will see to it, means he sees you, that when it comes to God's call, when it comes to to God's direction in our life, we can just head toward a region. This is where I know, God, you're you're leading me. I don't need to know the details. I'm going to trust you with the details because you are Yahweh Jireh. Make sense? You are seeing to it. But then there's something else that we know and experience when we begin to to learn that that Yahweh Jireh is a God who provides. And that's simply this. Write this down. Problems are opportunities for God to prove his faithfulness. Again, without re-preaching, three-day journey, can't imagine the doubts and fears and the questions that was on their mind. Um, again, three days is plenty of time to change your mind and turn around. Plenty of time to devise another scheme. I think there would have been time to try to think of a loophole to, to maybe you know figure out some kind of a U-turn that would justify why you decided to, to move in the opposite direction of where God was leading you. And, and I, again, guys, let's just be honest. How many of us have stepped out on some type of a faith journey only to turn back within three days? Because something has happened and we've said, you know what, God must have not been leading me in that direction. God couldn't have been leading me in that direction. It doesn't make sense for me to continue going in that direction. Maybe I misheard what God's 
call was. And what we're actually doing is we're trying to, to justify stepping away from radical obedience in our life. And, and that's really what, what it is, right? Instead of just obeying, we're looking for a way, a way out. But Abraham, he decided that this was an opportunity to prove his faithfulness to God and watch God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises begin to come back at him in his own life. He, he didn't know how, why, or what was going to happen, but he knew that God's promise was trustworthy. Even if it doesn't make sense, he would have thought, there, there's a promise that God must, through my son, create this great nation. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to trust him. I'm just going to follow through. And, and if it means that God raises him back from the dead, if he actually asks me to kill him, I'm going to do it. Because he understood Yahweh Jireh. God provides. God, God will see to it. And, and again, he saw the, 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 this opportunity to demonstrate faithfulness. Abraham's faithfulness and God's faithfulness. Again, this is the assurance that you can have in life when you know him as Jehovah Jireh. If you come to know God as provider, then whatever it is that God is asking you to do, whatever region he's calling you to do, whatever, whatever questions you still have about the details, if you, again, are convinced, believe that God is Yahweh Jireh, he will provide, you can continue to make your way to the mountain that he will eventually take you to, where you will see firsthand and experience firsthand Jehovah or Yahweh Jireh, because you're relying on him, his promises, not, not your idea, your picture of how everything, how everything can turn out or should turn out. Does that make sense? So again, get to know Yahweh Jireh. There's another name that we want to unpack as well. This is now a self-revealing name of God, and this is the name Yahweh Rapha. Yahweh Rapha. This story is in Exodus 15. And again, I love how we're unpacking all of these names through stories up to this point. I think these stories really do give us insight. The story in Exodus 15 is really a story of, uh, maybe, I'll frame it this way. It's a story of, of crushed expectations. Of crushed expectations. We could maybe even take it a little bit further and, and say this is, this is a story that can help us if we've become or were tempted to become disillusioned with God. We've all had um, crushed expectations, right? Let me, let me tease this out just real quickly before we jump into the story. We've had people recommend to us a restaurant. Oh, you've got to go to such and such restaurant and try the such and such you know, uh, entree on the menu. It's so good. And you go and you're like, okay, they said to order the steak and you order the steak and it's overcooked and it's not got a lot of flavor and you're like, oh man, I was really looking forward to this meal. My friend said it was really good and it, 
Oh, like that's a, 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 a crushed expectation. Or, or maybe you've been set up on a blind date. Oh, they're so good looking. She's so nice. He's so handsome. And you're like, all right, cool. Ding dong. Hi. Right? And it's an awkward night and it's an awkward encounter, right? But you're like, I thought you said he was a good looking dude. I thought you said that she was nice. This was an awful experience, right? The crushed expectations, right? We can go on and on and on, right? You, 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 you go on vacation and you read the reviews and reviews are great. This is going to be a great vacation. You show up and they're, they're cockroaches, you know, all over the room, right? The, the expectation versus reality. We, we understand that, right? We get that. This is what I expected and this is what I got. And, and that comes over in, into, you know, kind of our social media world, right? Have you ever, you know, seen any of those like expectation versus reality, whether it's on, you know, Pinterest or Instagram? Hey, look, I made, what's his name again? Olaf. Olaf. The expectation was I was going to make it look like the one on the left, the reality is, right, the one on the right, right? How many of you had those moments, right? Like, we, we get that. See, here's what happens, and we're going to see this in the story. We have moments in our lives where we think that God, I'll just say it, we think that God failed me. God failed me. I had this expectation of what I thought God would do, should do, ought to do, and that's not what happened. Therefore, we begin to think God must have failed me. And, and that can be when it comes to our careers. I had this expectation for my career. I had this expectation for my finances. I had these expectations for my relationships. I had these expectations for other areas of life. And, and you know what? It just... My life doesn't look like what I expected. And if we're not careful, we can attach and assign the blame to God. And again, we feel bad when that happens because it's like, how, how, do I, how am I mad at God? But it happens. We get disillusioned. And so that's where, where we're at in, in Exodus 15. Before I read this really kind of, it's really a great story. A little context. This is now Moses is the centerpiece of, the, of this story. He has... Uh, been called by God to lead uh, the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, right? He's gone to Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh's like, no. And God's like, okay, send the plague. And he goes back and he's like, let my people go. And Pharaoh says no. And here comes another plague. And, and the plague after plague after plague after plague. And then finally the, the death of the firstborn, the whole Passover peace. And finally Pharaoh says, all right, get out of here. And Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt, and they're going through the journey, and all of a sudden, Pharaoh changes his mind, and he calls his armies, like, go get them. I want them back. And, you know, the whole Red Sea moment, right? They get to the Red Sea, and they feel stuck because they're standing at the Red Sea, and you got Egypt behind them, chasing them, and the Red Sea in front of them. They don't know what to do. And Moses, you know, the whole Charlton Heston thing, and the, the reverse jello moment, and the jellos, instead of, you know, that's how they did that back in the day was with jello, um, Red Sea parts, they walk across, right, and they get to the other side, and uh, the, red, the Red Sea closes, and it drowns all of the, the armies of Pharaoh, 
right? And, and that's the story of, of God delivering uh, the children of Israel from bondage. And it's a great story. It's powerful. It's powerful. And it's great because it really happened, right? Not because it's just, it makes a good story. It really happened. And so in Exodus 15, they're right on the back end of the Red Sea. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've seen God literally move on their behalf, destroy their enemies. If you were to read the first part of Exodus 15, you'll see in a lot of your Bibles will say, it's the song of Moses, right? So they get to the other side of the Red Sea and, and they start writing this song and the children of Israel start singing this song and it was a great song about God being faithful and God delivering them and God taking out their enemies and they're excited beyond belief. Life is good now. They are, they are free and clear from Egypt. The future is so bright for them that they've, they've got to wear shades. Thank you, Gen Xers, right? I mean, things are, are looking good for Israel. And then we jump into this story that takes place literally, listen to this, three days later. Three days, not three weeks, not three months, but three days after the Red Sea. And I want to jump in and read verses 22 and 23. It says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. They had kind of their celebration moment, party, you know, the, you know all, all of that. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness, and watch this, and found no water. They found no water. Three days, found no water. What in the world are they going to do? Hmm, is there anybody that they know that has the ability to do anything with water? Hmm. They're thinking, we don't know anybody that has the ability to do anything with water. We're thirsty. Three days later, right, they've got a water problem. They forgot about the water problem they had three days earlier that God solved. All they know is they're thirsty. Verse 23 says, When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. That's what Marah means, is it means bitterness. So again, they've been told about a promised land. They've been delivered from, from the Egyptians. They're in this in-between place that feels like a desert, and they're having this, this experience that's causing them to feel disillusioned. You know, in life, and this is what I think we see in this story, we must go through the desert to experience the promise, right? Right? We've got to go through the desert to experience the promise. And so three days without water. And what happens? Look at verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? How quickly things change. Oh, how the turns have tabled. Wait, did I get that? That's... So, so now all of a sudden, 
Instead of remembering, wait, God just did something miraculous with water a few days ago. Again, not a few weeks ago, a few months ago, a few years ago, three days ago. They're already going, Moses, what gives? They start to complain. That They start to grumble. They turn against Moses. And again, how often is that like us? How quickly we get disillusioned, how quickly we forget the faithfulness, the goodness of God. Keep reading, verse 25. And he cried to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord. Moses did what Moses ought to have done. He cries out to the Lord, and it says, and the Lord showed him a log. He showed him a, a branch. Again, we don't know what, what some versions might just say a stick, but we know it was from a tree, whether it was a, a stick, a branch, a log, whatever. We know that there was something mystical and magical about the tree, right? Was it a magic tree? That wasn't a magic tree, <laughs> right? But God said, take that stick, take that log, take that branch, whatever it was, and I want you to, to take it and to throw it into the waters of Mara, the waters of bitterness. And so Moses is like, okay. And he does that. And look what it says. And the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there tested them. Again, let me just stop right there. He throws the stick in the water, this bitter water, and it turned everything around. Do you understand that all of the Bible serves as a, as a signpost that points people ultimately to Jesus? And we've, already, we've seen that twice today. The story of Abraham and Isaac, right? The sacrifice, right? That, that's a picture, that's a foreshadowing of, of God offering his son, his son Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins. So we see kind of this, this foreshadowing, this signpost that's guiding us to Jesus in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Do you see it here as well? Somebody help me out here. The stick is a picture of what? Stick is made of? Wood. There you go. It's a cross. When, when you read this story, again, God, because he's God, is weaving in just another, uh, another breadcrumb, another Easter egg, uh, another way for believers to now look back at his story through, from the beginning of time and see, and, and, and now they can see, right there, he, he was pointing to Jesus. Right, right there, he was pointing to Jesus. Ah, oh, there, there's another picture of Jesus. And so, so as he took that, that stick, as he took that log, that branch, that tree, whatever it was, God was saying, in one day, one day I'm going to send my son who is going to hang on a tree and he's going to take the bitterness of life and make it sweet. He's going to be the one who can turn things around. Again, they didn't, they, they didn't know that part of the story. We have the advantage of looking back and seeing it now. They couldn't see it then. But the water goes from being bitter to being sweet, from being swamp water to, to being Avion bottled water, right? Oh, just nice and sweet. Dasani, whatever your favorite bottled water is. You're like, I just like to tap water, it's fine. But it's perfect, it's got, it's, it's beautiful, crystal clear water. The water of bitterness 
becomes sweet. And then look what happens. It says, therefore, the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for, and again, here's the self-revealing name that God gives himself, for I am the Lord your healer, Yahweh Rapha. But what does all that mean? When, when, when some people look at the name of God, Yahweh Rapha, or Rapha, they interpret it to mean that because God is healer, that means that God doesn't want you to be sick. Because God is healer, all cancer must go in the name of Yahweh Rapha. Because God is Yahweh Rapha, if you see somebody who is struggling, who is sick, it's a sign that they have that they lack faith because Yahweh Rapha is a healer. And they'll look at other passages of scripture where, where it talks about the, the God's healing. Can, can we understand something? When, when we read in our 21st century um, mind about healing, we only think of it through one, one, one lens, and that's our physical, our physical healing. That's it. That's, what, that's how we, we run to that so quickly. When, when God says, I am Yahweh Rapha, Yahweh Rapha, I am the Lord, your healer. He wasn't talking primarily about healing from sickness, healing from disease. How do I know that? Think of the context. He, he's telling Israel, he's like, look, if you'll follow me and obey my statutes, I won't have to deal with you in the same way that I dealt with Egypt. And what, what do we know about Egypt? Egypt was, was, a, was a nation filled with idolatry. It was a nation that, that had wanted nothing to do with, the, the, with Yahweh, right? And, and, and God, Yahweh, had to deal with them because of their idolatrous minds, their hearts, the fact that they didn't want anything to do with them, with him, with Yahweh. And so Yahweh says, look, if you'll listen to me, if you'll follow me, if you'll obey me, I'm not going to have to deal with you the way I dealt with them. That, to me, doesn't sound like a promise to heal you from disease. That's, it's not what he's saying there. And when we think that that's what it means for us to appeal to or get to know Yahweh Rapha, then we have misunderstood what his intention is. Well, again, what is his intention? His intention is for us to understand that in our lives, when, when our expectations of God don't match up with the reality of, of what, um, what we're experiencing, it's not a problem with God. The problem is with our perspective. And our problem is with our uncanny ability to forget his goodness. To forget what he does in us, for us, and on our behalf. See, some of us need to be healed of that, of the forgetfulness. Some of us have to be, need, need to be healed of our tendency to want to run back to our Egypt. Whatever our Egypt was chase after those idols 
that kept us in bondage. We need Yahweh Rapha to heal us from our desire to run back to that. When I think of Yahweh Rapha, I, I think of that more than cancer or sicknesses or some kind of disease. Because that's what I need healed from more than anything is my tendency and my desire to run back to my own Egypt, to climb back into my own prison that God says, I've set you free from, that I've delivered you out of. See, again, life will often take us to Mara. It does. Life will take us to places in life where, where there's some bitterness, where things aren't going well where things aren't great. Not great, Bob, not great. Things aren't going well. And in those moments, we have a choice to make. We can either become disillusioned with God and say, you know what? I might as well run back to my Egypt. Or we can say, God, I'm going to trust you in Mara. I'm going to trust that, that you have the ability to take the bitterness that I'm experiencing right now, the pain in my relationships and my careers, the pain in my health that I'm experiencing right now, the, 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 the pain with my finances that I'm experiencing right now. And, and if, I, if I lean into you instead of away from you, you have the ability because of Jesus, because of the cross, to take that bitterness of life and make it something sweet. But we've got to lean in instead of run away. We've heard this before, right? That the, the, the problems in life will either make you bitter or they'll make you better. And, and I've been doing ministry long enough now to know that I've been around people who've experienced the exact same circumstances. And those circumstances have made some bitter and it has made some better. Two couples going through the same type of marriage issues. One couple chooses bitterness and it ends in a divorce. Another couple chooses to lean in and to fight for their marriage and to fight for each other, not fight with each other, but fight for the promises that they made before God, and, and their marriage has gotten better because of it. I've seen two people who've gotten the diagnosis of cancer, and one person, again, allows that diagnosis, that pain, that unmet expectation to lead them away from God, and they become bitter. And I've seen plenty of others who that, that cancer has made them better because they believe that Yahweh knows best. Two people who have financial problems, one gets mad at God and pushes away. The other says, I need to take some responsibility and deal with my issues. And they work on it. And they climb out of it. They get better because of it instead of bitter. And we can go on and on and on and on and on. The difference is, how well do you know Yahweh Rafi? How well do you know Yahweh Rafi? How well do you know him as healer? The one who can take the bitterness and make things sweet. The rest of the story, we didn't read this part. The last verse, verse 27, it says, Then they came to Elam. God led them from a place called Mara, bitterness, and he says, okay, now that you've experienced that and you saw me take the bitterness and make it sweet, now I'm going to continue to lead you to a place called Elam. And what was waiting for them in Elam? There were 12 springs of water. 
and 70 palm trees. And they encamped there by the water. What do we know about a spring? It's fresh. It's ongoing. It just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. It just keeps coming, right? The, 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 the spring water is the best water out there. Those of you who have a spring on your property that actually produces the water, it's great, right? Stick with the story. I'm going to sidetrack, Trent. But again, do you get the picture? That, listen, if we'll trust God in Mara, we'll get to Elam. We'll get to the, the place where God is doing exceeding abundantly more than we ask or think, where, where the river or the waters just flow and it's sweet and it's cold and it's refreshing and it's nourishing and it's just what we need and it's, and it's satisfying. But we've got to stay in the game. We can't push away. We can't allow the momentary Mara moments of life to lead us toward bitterness. We've got to let them drive us toward Elam, toward, toward a place where, where we're continuing to be nourished. Well, how do I do that, Trent? Well, I'm glad you asked because the, the answer is really here in Moses' response. How do we know if we're learning that God is healer? How are we learning whether or not I'm really getting to know this Yahweh Rapha. Well, do what Moses did. Well, what did Moses do? Well, he did two things, and it's right there in the story. It said that he, he turned to God. He cried out to God for help. And then he obeyed God even though it didn't make sense. That's what the stick was. It was a step of obedience that didn't make sense. Right? Step of obedience didn't make sense, but I'm going to do it because God told me to do it. So, in your life, my life, our lives, what are you going to do when you find yourself in Mara? Cry out to God and look for the stick. Look for the stick. Well, what is the stick? It's the step of obedience that maybe you don't understand, but you're like, I believe God's asking me to do this, I don't want to take this step. I'm going to toss the stick in the water. I don't know what it'll do, but I'm going to do it because that's what God's asked me to do. What's the stick step with your finances? It doesn't make any sense, but I'm going to take that step. What's the step when it comes to your future, your stick step? See, I've, I've learned that the most important times of my life are not the times where I'm in Elam, they, they, they happen in the times when I'm in Mara, when things aren't really good. Because that's where my faith is tested. That's where I learn to trust and get to know Yahweh Rafi. And I want you to know Yahweh Rafi, to know him as healer. And maybe the first step to take in, in that deal is to admit you're sick. Admit that you're bitter. You're in this place you don't want to be. And you're like, God, I don't, I don't want to feel this way. I don't want to think this way about you. I don't want this disillusionment because my expectation and reality don't match up. Help me to get to know you as healer, as the one who can turn the bitterness into sweetness. That's my prayer. So today as we respond, I want us to all take that step of, of obedience. Cry out to God. Think about a stick step. Remember him as Yahweh Jireh, 
Remember him as Yahweh Rafi. But before we do that, the worship team is going to come, and we're going to, we're going to take communion. Uh, kiddos, on, uh, when, you, when they came in today, or when you came in today, tried to get to everybody, but if anybody's not got a, um, a communion cup, um, raise your hand and we'll, we'll get you one. Got a couple up here. You got some over there. Maybe one more kiddo can go, help, go back and help Miss Danielle get those to some people. All right, we've got several over here. Start throwing them. Get your communion cups. Get your communion cups. So communion, what I want to do today is I want to let communion be personal. We won't do it corporately. We'll just let you do it personally. And I'm doing that also for families. Uh, as families, if, if you want to lead your kiddos through communion, you can do that. And, and very simply, just take a minute and, and, and remind one another that the, the wafer is is symbolic. It's a picture of Christ's body. That when we take the bread, the, this wafer, it's a way for us to remember what Christ did for us. And then when you drink the juice, it's a way for us to think about Christ's shed blood offered so that we could be forgiven. So I want you to take some time to, to do communion just on your own. But then as we worship God together, I want to ask you to do what Moses did if you admit that you're in a place of disillusionment and bitterness, cry out to him and ask him to show you the stick that you need to toss into the water. Maybe tap a friend on the shoulder and say, hey, would you pray with me? Would you come in and, and come to the altar, come and kneel and pray? But let's just spend some time responding to Yahweh Jireh and Yahweh Rafa today. Father, we love you. Thank you for this day, the chance to, to respond to you. Guide us, direct us. May our worship and response be a reflection of our, of our, again, love and faith and commitment to you. We love you, Christ. In your name we pray.